minus 10. Welcome to Laser Focused. Together, we make the impossible possible. Now here's your host, Renette Youssef. Welcome back to another episode of Laser Focused. I'm your host, Renette Youssef, CMO and brand disruptor at Velo3D. This week, I'm speaking with Sandra DeVincent Wolf, Executive Director of the Carnegie Mellon University Manufacturing Futures Institute, also the Executive Director of the CMU Next Manufacturing Center. Sandra is advancing research for both the university and industry partners. Today, we will be talking about innovation in materials and how the research her students are doing will drive the industry forward. Welcome, Sandra. Thanks for making the time. So I won't list everything you're involved in, but to name a few, you're Executive Director of the Carnegie Mellon Manufacturing Futures Institute and the CMU Next Manufacturing Centre. You're on the Advanced Manufacturing Materials and Process Program Technical Advisory Board and on the America Makes Executive Committee and Governance Board. How do you get the time? (laughs) Honestly, I don't know. Um, So (laughs) the good news is these things all overlap. And otherwise, I don't think it would be at all possible. But the fact that they do overlap actually is what helps with part of the success of all of this and helps me do as well as I can in these roles, because I do make a lot of connections of people and capabilities and whatnot. And and being involved in a number of sort of overlapping activities uh, makes that possible. Where did this passion for engineering come from? So to be honest, I didn't learn about engineering until probably high school. So I would say it really comes out of a love for math and science and my desire to put those to work. So I'm a very hands-on, maker-doer kind of person. You know, I've loved math and science since I was a child. And when I was in high school and starting to think about college, I was considering math and science, you know, as pure majors unto themselves, but also starting to look at engineering as a way to put those foundational things to work. Did you have people in your life uh, growing up that inspired you around math and science and, and then later thinking about engineering? Or was it just because you followed a passion? I would say I, I did not have people around me with backgrounds uh, in these areas in a traditional sense. But I do come from an entrepreneurial, very hardworking, blue-collar family And my work ethic and commitment to excellence and delivering on my word come undoubtedly from them. And they really led by example in these things. But all that said, I would say they were always very supportive of my interests, regardless of whether it was something they were familiar with or not. So you were awarded the CMU College of Engineering's 2018 Inspirational Leadership Award, which recognizes individuals who inspire others, which I think is absolutely fantastic. What did it mean to you to win that award? And was it, again, because your background also helped you to get to that level? Honestly, I've been recognized for many technical and non-technical accomplishments in the course of my career, but this award is among the very most special ones to me. And I'm actually getting goosebumps just starting to talk to you about it. And it's been like three or four years now since I got it. So I was so honored to be nominated and selected for this. And actually, this was early on in my time at Carnegie Mellon. So it was unusual for someone to be recognized this early. 
But what was most precious about this to me wasn't the luncheon, it wasn't the crystal award that I have, you know, on my desk, but really it was the nomination package, which I was pleasantly surprised to receive in the mail after the award ceremony. And reading the nomination letters from the faculty and the students that I work closely with, talking about the impact that they believe I have on them, on others in the university, on our centers, on their personal and professional lives and on the industry was just breathtaking. And honestly, I'm not kidding. I have goosebumps just telling you about this. I now. have goosebumps listening to you say it, talk about it. <laughs> yeah, no, it was such a special thing. So since engineering is still very male dominated, and I imagine a lot at Carnegie Mellon, but you can correct me, how important do you think is it that students see women like you leading the charge in research? First, I am proud to say that we are approximately 50% women in engineering and in computer science at Carnegie Mellon. But it's taken a long time to get there. And I know like back when I went to school, which wasn't here in Pittsburgh, I went to MIT and this is 30 some odd years ago. You know, we were only 25% women at the time, but that school is also 50% now and mostly engineering. We're making progress. So I believe that most students do need to see themselves in the roles that may be open to them in order to truly believe that they can achieve them. And that goes for all students but especially those that might consider a field where they will be in the minority. And like I said, we've made some progress in these areas, particularly with girls and women in STEM fields, but we're still in the minority, especially in engineering. So I do take my role as an example in that very seriously. And I mentor our female students and young professionals. I've also participated in STEM outreach activities for K-12 students going back decades to my days in graduate school, and also would encourage other engineers to participate in those types of activities, but not just for the students, but also for the parents in the lay public who might be in positions to support girls with interests in engineering, because that's very important as well. And sometimes it's hard for people who are not engineers or not in engineering to support an interest in their daughters who may be looking at engineering. Amazing. So you, you talked a little bit about your educational background, like MIT, et cetera. You also did a PhD. Can you talk a bit about your PhD and your focus on education? So my entire educational background is all in material science and engineering. So I have a bachelor's degree from MIT and a master's in a PhD in material science and engineering as well from Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio. So I was a NASA fellow while I was in graduate school. So that gave me the opportunity to be in residence at what was then NASA Lewis, now NASA Glenn Research Center in Cleveland. And that's where I conducted all of my research for my graduate degrees. Um, While I was there, I worked on the development of graphite fiber reinforced copper composites for space power radiator panels in the leading edge of hypersonic vehicles. So this was Uh, materials design and development back when composites was one of the hottest areas of research. This is in the early 90s. It was an amazing place to work, absolutely amazing to be around NASA at that time, around the most amazing advances and things that were happening then and to be able to contribute, you know, to the research that was happening there. I can only imagine. Uh, Do you have any highlights that, again, maybe give you goosebumps about that time? So there are a couple of things that I remember most specially. So so the first thing I'll mention, and this isn't so much a goosebump thing, but it is a credit where credit is due. That's when I got involved in outreach. 
I had a, an office mate, his name is David Ellis, who was a few years ahead of me in uh, his research there at NASA. And uh, one day I showed up for work and he says, we're going to judge a science fair today. And I was like, oh, we are. And then, so, and off we went. Next thing you know, I'm on a committee and, you know, I'm getting involved. And here I am, you know, 30 years later doing outreach, never saying no to be able to talk to kids and teachers and parents about science and engineering. So that's one thing. I was there when the Hubble sent back its very first images. And so that is one of the sort of groundbreaking, goosebumpy, you know, kind of experiences that I had. I've met a number of astronauts in my time there at NASA. And since then, I wanted to be an astronaut myself for a while. I guess I, I would go with the Hubble. Hubble sending back the first images is probably one of the most memorable sort of outside of my own research experiences. I can imagine. Uh, why didn't you pursue the astronaut path? So to be, so I had seen a number of launches. I had the application and this is when I was like in my early twenties to be really competitive for that program, to have enough experience to be competitive. You've got to be around 30 years old. And I had my first child when I was 29. And at the time I just felt like Maybe that wasn't the most responsible career move because that is a very risky endeavor and it requires a number of years being away for training and whatnot. So it really was just trying to balance, you know, where my life was at that time and my numerous things I was interested in from a career standpoint. Makes perfect sense. Just moving a little bit, uh, at CMU, your work is in engineering, but also policy, education, safety, and workload. As more companies and industries adopt additive manufacturing, why is this comprehensive training so important? So I think it's important to recognize that additive manufacturing is a very interdisciplinary field. And most endeavors these days are, right? So it's, it's rare that you can focus on a single field of science or a single field of engineering and not need knowledge from other areas or collaborators from other areas. But additive manufacturing uh, in the days that I've been in it I have found to be probably one of the most naturally interdisciplinary fields. And so we have numerous different engineering disciplines participating, pure science disciplines, computer science, robotics, engineering and public policy. It's a field that requires uh, very serious attention to environmental health and safety, especially if you're working in metals additive manufacturing, which is where most of our work is. And those working with metal powders present significant hazards. And so having partners in environmental health and safety is very important in making sure you train the people who are going to have access to your equipment or be working in your lab is very important that way. So you touched on metal 3D printing or additive manufacturing. So Pittsburgh has historically been a hub for this metal processing. And now the area seems to be a hot spot for metal 3D printing. Is that what you're seeing? And how important is it that you're providing the education and tools to revitalize this area? It is. So southwestern Pennsylvania is definitely, definitely a hotbed here in the U.S. or worldwide, really, for metal 3D printing. And I think that comes, like you mentioned, from our history, right? So we are the home and of the, you know, where the, all the metals manufacturing was founded in the first place, whether it's, you know, steel or aluminum, specialty alloys, or putting those things to use, you know, with Westinghouse and, you know, and all the others that were responsible for the Industrial Revolution originally. 
And while we have, as a city, seen a number of setbacks and things related to the changes in the steel industry and other areas of primary metal producing here in Pittsburgh, it's a resilient area, very resilient area, and has uh, rebounded very strongly and reinvented itself as sort of a high-tech area, right? So we are leaders in robotics and in advanced manufacturing, and we have the workforce here with the history in metalworking to be able to transition or to upskill into these other areas that require a working knowledge of metals and processing of metals, right? So if you can take employees, whether it's machinists or technicians or engineers who had been working in some of these industries that have gotten smaller over the years and with some training, and, and some new experience, move them over into an area like metal 3D printing. It's been a hotbed in that area for that reason. We also have a number of, so we're not the only ones at Carnegie Mellon doing research and education in this area. So the University of Pittsburgh also has capabilities and, you know, lab in metal 3D printing. Penn State has a really big program in this area as well. So I think everything we need is pretty much here. We're also home to 40% of all the metal powders that are manufactured in the U.S. I did not know that. Within two hours of us. Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay. When it comes to metal 3D printing, what do you see as some of the benefits and some of the limitations? So there are a lot of benefits to considering metal 3D printing. And, you know, I guess just to name them, that would include the ability to make things that can't be made by traditional manufacturing for one reason or another. More often than not, that will be because the design is too complex. Or there are internal channels or networks or designs that you couldn't possibly make unless you could get inside and do that, which you can't do with traditional manufacturing. You can make very complex things. You can customize designs. This is why they're popular for knee and hip implants and things like that, right? So you don't have to have a one-size-fits-all. You can customize them. You can lightweight things because you have the ability to put material only where you need it don't have to start with a block and figure out how are you going to get material away from it. You can consolidate parts. So you can look at systems that have 5, 20, maybe 100 parts. And you can consider redesign of that whole system, knowing that you can make some of these parts together as one. And you can eliminate failure points. You can eliminate assembly joints. You can eliminate steps in your process to manufacture those. You also have the ability to make things where and when you need them. So you don't have to inventory things for so long or stock them. Maybe you have a vendor that's gone out of business. You could reverse engineer and 3D print something if you can't find a new vendor. Lots and lots of opportunities. I'm nodding away because it's a lot of the things that we talk about. (laughs) You did talk a lot about things like legacy parts, performance, improving design, Do you have any case studies that you can talk about where you've seen 3D printing do this and improve the end product? Things that I've seen out in industry and that I'll talk to when I'm like lecturing to our lab classes and whatnot in this space are, I I think some of the best ones probably have been consolidation of parts type of examples, right? So you could go back to citing the very first one, right, that hit the market, and that was the GE fuel nozzle, right? And most people in metal additive manufacturing know that story, that there's new design of a fuel nozzle, and it was going to take, you know, 20 parts and basically make it as one. 
And after a, a number of design iterations, you know, they were very successful in doing it. And they ended up with a part that was lighter, that performed better, had better fuel efficiency, you know, and all kinds of sort of extra benefits in addition to just simply being able to make that design. There are other examples in other industries out there that are similar. So GM and Autodesk work together to redesign seatbelt bracket for automotive applications. That is a seven parts, now one type of consolidation of parts. My favorite is an RF antenna that used to be probably 100 pounds, 100 parts, very heavy, something that someone in the field would carry around on their back in a backpack has been redesigned, 3D printed as one part that fits in the palm of your hand. So it's easily transportable and actually works better. So those are, I mean, those are all focused on consolidation of parts, but those are tremendous examples of maximizing the benefit of 3D printing. What about in Pittsburgh itself? How have you seen 3D printing fuel innovation in the area? So we have, we're a very close-knit community here in Pittsburgh, particularly in manufacturing. And I would say, you know, the universities all talk and work together. We have small and medium manufacturers. We have a couple of the Manufacturing USA institutes here, like America Makes, right, which is dedicated to supporting technology development and adoption and workforce training and additive manufacturing. We also now have coming online something new, and it's called Neighborhood 91. And it is an additive manufacturing campus metal additive manufacturing campus that is being built on the property adjacent to the Pittsburgh airport. And it is a campus that is going to house everything from start to finish for production of AM parts. Everything from producing argon gas on site, making metal powders on site, having service bureaus, major companies. So there are a handful of companies that have already moved into the area in addition to services for other OEMs and the the defense supply network that's here in the region and whatnot. As a community, I think we have a lot of opportunity to do everything from cutting edge research like we're doing, where we're looking at sensing and automation, where we're monitoring everything that goes on in the process, where we have developed ways to learn enough about unusual materials to be able to bring them into processes where they're not normally used and to be able to successfully print parts to being able to transition that technology to some of our manufacturers in the area and to actually bring things out to neighborhood 91 if you need the capability of producing things at scale. And so I think as a region, we have a lot of opportunity there and there's a lot of interest a lot of employment opportunities in addition to those of us that are already involved. You see other sort of cities taking an approach to 3D metal printing or additive manufacturing, or is it back to what we talked about earlier because of the roots of metal processing in Pittsburgh? Yeah, so it's mostly here. So I actually have friends, consultants in this space that I'm close to that have looked around at other cities and looked at places. Um, I actually participated as a mentor in a graduate class that was looking at the adoption of emerging technologies and setting up sort of campus type environments or regional type ecosystems and how they support the adoption of 
emerging technologies and how successful that is versus other areas where they don't have it. And uh, the results of those studies and investigations have shown that this is very, for 3D printing, this is absolutely unique. Now, there are a number of other areas where there's tremendous work being done across the U.S. in 3D printing and a number of other universities that are doing fantastic work that we collaborate with as well. But I think the soup to nuts, you know, the whole ecosystem, I think we're probably the only example of that. We talked a little bit about design and some of the limitations. There's also a lot of discussion in this space around design for additive manufacturing. And then also at Velo, we believe that you don't have to design for additive manufacturing. You just design the part you want and you can actually get it. So what are your thoughts on this and and how do we overcome obstacles around designing for additive? So what I'm seeing out in the industry when we, and I meet with 80, maybe 100 different external partners every year in manufacturing, most of them in additive. So I have the benefit of interacting with lots of people who work in this space or who are trying to work in this space. I am still hearing a very strong need for re-educating the existing workforce in designing for additive, that it's just a completely different mindset from subtractive manufacturing that most people are aware of. And there's definitely need for design for additive manufacturing classes, whether it's while you're in school or it's certification or ongoing education kind of training classes. Similar to the design for manufacturing courses many of us took 25 years ago when we were starting out and working out in industry so that we could make sure that we didn't have engineers designing things that just couldn't be made at all. So that said, I do think because I'm around a lot of students and a lot of people who are just starting out in this area and starting to learn their own design skills, their approach to things is far more flexible, I think, than people who have been in the industry for 20 or 30 years already. The students now, the people who are learning who are in their teens and in their 20s, they don't have as much exposure to traditional manufacturing. Most of them have no exposure to traditional manufacturing, except for maybe like woodworking or, which is still an example of starting with a block and, you know, carving it away or cutting it away to, to make something else. But I think I'm finding that most of the students, especially those that come into engineering, have exposure to desktop plastic 3D printing already, right? Whether it was through their high school or they have one at home or their library or, you know, some program they went to over the summer, there's a good bit of exposure to that. And the skills they learn in designing for desktop plastic 3D printing are still the foundation for designing for additive. Now, all that said, I know what you're getting at. And that is like, could you eliminate the design engine, you know, the concern for the type of manufacturing? So I do believe that you have to give some thought to all the different things you have available to you, right? So metal 3D printing isn't going to replace manufacturing. It's another option. It's another tool in the toolbox. We actually have a project going on right now that's led by one of our research teams that is developing basically an AI-enabled system. You would input a part or a component and some boundary conditions or requirements around it, and it would tell you what type of manufacturing to use for that part whether it's stamping or you know molding or whether 3D printing or a three-axis mill or a five-axis mill type of machining would be needed. That's one of our active research projects that we do have going on. I want to hear more about this when, once you flesh it out more, but that is, I love AI and, and using this application sounds perfect. So Sandra, 3D printing is sometimes not better than an alternative. When is it better to stick to traditional manufacturing? 
probably the best examples of that are times when the parts are very simple, when there are very high quantities of them, and they already can be made very quickly for very little cost. Things like brackets, nuts and bolts, smaller, simple things like that that can be stamped or that there are very efficient production lines, you know, already in place, you know, to manufacture those. Because honestly, additive manufacturing or 3D printing is not that fast. It's not that cheap. Now, you, so you have to be able to afford the complexity or afford the time, right, to do it. Now, that said, 3D printing something in 20 or 40 hours is a lot faster than waiting six or 12 months for a large scale casting or 18 months for a forging that you can't get in this country anymore. And so regardless of the cost or the fact that it might take you 30 hours or 80 hours to print something, that's still quick in those, you know, in that scenario. But when it comes to sort of routine parts or routine things, things that are, I don't know, just common consumer good type of things, a lot of those don't make sense. You're just not taking advantage of what additive can bring to you. Things that are very complicated, that can afford the development time, can afford qualification of those parts, very challenging designs, extreme environments, things like that, you know, then they definitely make sense. Or when parts have to be customized in small quantity. What are some active research areas you're digging into currently at CMU? So we do research in metals additive and just about everything from development of new materials to process monitoring and control. So we have uh, methods for monitoring what's happening in the melt pool, what's happening with spatter inside systems. We monitor acoustic signals for identification of flaws. So we do a lot of work in trying to monitor the system to develop methods that would allow you to non-destructively qualify a process or a material. We also do a lot of research with how to tie what we see in starter materials and the process to the properties at the end. Like, what do you get in the way of mechanical properties? Is it as strong? Is it, you know, can you fatigue load it? You know, things like that. We are applying AI across all areas of additive. This is something that we just started doing maybe five years ago, and I could say it's absolutely commonplace in everything we do now. So every piece of AM that we look at is using advanced data analytics, algorithms, tools to manage the just massive amounts of data that we collect, whether it's image-based or sound-based during our additive research processes. We do more than metals additive, actually. We do have some research in ceramic 3D printing and 3D printing of soft and biological materials. We are metals heavy, but we do uh, research in a lot of other areas. That's perfect. And, and so where do you see additive making the most impact in the new future, like even with not just metal, but any of the materials? So one of the most important areas, I would say, and it's really come to light in the last couple of years, is supply chain issues solving those. So there've been, you know, supply chain issues and everything from things, you know, for that support national security to just trying to order a computer these days, right? And everything in between. And so if companies have gone on a business or it's very difficult to get materials or to get supplies, 
um, using additive manufacturing to make them yourself, basically, instead is an option. It allows you also to make parts where and when they're needed. And this can apply to industrial plants, to dental offices, to the battlefield, or up in space. Like we just hosted a space conference here in the region last week, and we were talking about, you know, printing in space and the, the overlap between expeditionary manufacturing research that we're doing for the Army so that things can be made where and when they're needed, whether it's at a depot overseas or, or on or near a battlefield. But having to do things like that in space is very similar constraints. That's something that allows you to do that because you cut a lot of steps out of the process if you can 3D print things on site. Yeah, absolutely. So what advice would you give to young engineering students who are eager to get more involved with additive manufacturing? So I would say just jump in and get started. So you can download this free software you can download that allow you to design parts to use CAD, sort of lightweight CAD programming. There are things like Blender, oh, I'm blanking, maybe Fusion that are out there that allow you to just download and start playing with it. Even a program like SolidWorks, which is used in most of our universities and in industry today, you can get a student license for SolidWorks for $25. They have tutorials that walk you through how to use the different components of that. And so you can just jump right in there and start designing things. And if you don't have access to a desktop metal 3D printer in your school, then chances are there might be one in your library or in your community center. There are actually UPS centers, as in the shipping company, UPS centers, where you can get things 3D printed. These days, I think most cities have some sort of makerspace that supports just entrepreneurs and ideas and allows people to come in and print things. And you could get started that way. And then if you want to get into the field for real, when you go to college, there's lots of different ways you can go. And it doesn't have to be mechanical or material science and engineering anymore. There's space for electrical engineers and for physicists and computer scientists and people who are interested in automation and robotics. And it's tremendously interdisciplinary. Yeah. That is, I think we should all do our part to make um, additive manufacturing more accessible. But any advice specifically for women considering a future in STEM fields? So first and foremost, it's an awesome place to be. The best thing about being an engineer and one of the best things about being in additive manufacturing is that we get to make stuff, right? Not only do we have amazing toys, so to speak, to play with and equipment, the things that we make are just amazing the advances in these fields are just happening like every day and actually getting used out in industry very quickly. So the time between development and of new knowledge and new tools and techniques and implementation out in industry to these things is almost instant. Whereas it used to be five, 10, 15 years, you know, that developments would take before they would actually get implemented out in industry. So I would say just follow your passions and know that that you can do it. I mean, we can all do it, right? And if if that's of interest to you, and you don't have to, another thing to recognize, I think that ages ago, you know, decades ago, I think we maybe were sending the wrong message. And there's been a lot of effort now on changing the conversation. And it doesn't have to be that you got an A in every single math and science class to qualify you to go into a STEM field. You've got to have strong skills in those areas. But I think the number one driver today is, do you want to solve a problem and do you want to make an impact? Because that's really what engineers do. And it's really what we do in the STEM fields. It's not just about using math and science every day. It's, it's about solving problems. 
this solving problems theme is coming up a lot in our show. And I just, you know, people can't see you, but you absolutely lit up when I, you, I asked you that question and as you were talking about it, so I can see how passionate you are. But I do want to thank you for your time today. And next time you're in California, let us know and we'll give you a tour of Bello 3D. I'd love to see your reaction to our metal 3D printers um, and show you what we can do. But thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. I want to thank Sandra for taking the time to come on the show today to discuss the active research happening at CMU and how material innovations are changing 3D printing. Thank you for listening, and please remember to leave a review or subscribe so you never miss an episode. I'm your host, Renette Youssef, and this has been Laser Focused, where together we innovate without compromise.